Glad that you're here. Well, we say it every week, but if you're a guest of ours, we're really honored that you're here. Now, honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. Um, a lot of good things going on this week. I want to begin today's lesson. I'll tell you right up front. I'm going to begin today's lesson by telling you three jokes. And I want you to know in the front end they're jokes, okay? And since they're jokes, it's okay to laugh. Or it's okay to moan. Or you can sit with a blank stare like usual when I tell a joke. But I'm telling you three jokes, and they're all bad preacher jokes. Okay? First joke. Preacher is kind of known to being long-winded, a little bit dry sometimes, starts preaching on a Sunday morning. Thirty minutes in, he hadn't even already got started. An hour goes by. He's still going strong, preaching away. The congregation is starting to have a little bit of a hard time sticking with him. An hour and a half goes by. He's not slowing down a bit. He's still preaching and teaching and yelling and screaming. The two-hour mark, he is still going strong. A guy all the way in the back takes a songbook, throws it up towards the preacher, hoping to hit him, maybe get him to sit down. But he doesn't throw it quite far enough. And the songbook doesn't make it all the way to the stage. Instead, it hits an older woman sitting in the very front row in the back of her head. Lays her out on the pew, knocks her down. The preacher doesn't miss a beat. He doesn't even seem to notice. He just keeps right on preaching. This old lady kind of pulls herself back up on the pew. She turns around and yells, Hit me again! I can still hear them! <laughs> Number two. Preacher goes out of town for a, a gospel meeting. And the first night of the gospel meeting, only four people show up to listen to him. Afterwards, he talks to the custodian. He said, didn't anybody advertise that I was going to be speaking here tonight? The custodian said, nobody did, but apparently words leaked out. <laughs> Number three. The preacher's going through his sermon about halfway through. He thinks that maybe his microphone's not working. So he says, can you people in the back, can you hear me back there? One guy says, we can't hear a word back here. And everybody at the front of the auditorium got up and moved to the back of the auditorium. I could tell bad preacher jokes for hours because there are so many bad preacher jokes. And maybe because there are so many bad preachers. I don't know. But there's a lot of them. We are beginning this morning a new sermon series that I'm really excited about. We are going to be talking about the preacher. And we are going to be talking about a sermon that the preacher preached. And I'll tell you right up front, it is the best preacher that's ever walked the face of the earth. And it is arguably the most famous, most powerful sermon that was ever preached in the history of mankind. We are beginning this morning a series through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is recorded in Matthews chapter 5, 6, and 7. And for those people who were fortunate enough to actually sit on that mountainside and hear Jesus teaching, I guarantee those people weren't bored. And I guarantee none of them were looking at their watch going, how much longer is this guy going to go? Nobody was talking about where they were going to go for lunch. Nobody was taking their kids out because, you know, Dad got tired of sitting, so let me take the kid out. You know? Nobody's wondering who's going to win the big game that afternoon. These people were hanging on Jesus' every word because what he was saying 
and what he was teaching was fascinating. So we're going to spend several weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount, these three wonderful chapters in the book of Matthew. Mark Twain, talking about the Bible, once said this, I hear people complain that the Bible is too hard to understand. Yet I find myself much more bothered by the parts of the Bible that I can understand than by the parts of the Bible that I cannot understand. And I think that holds some truth in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Yes, there are some things that Jesus talks about in this famous sermon that kind of fit into that first group. There are some things that I really wish he'd spend a little more time with. I wish that he would give us a little bit more information, a little bit more explanation about some of the things that he talks about. But for the most part, the vast majority of the Sermon on the Mount, I get it. I understand exactly what Jesus is saying. And I understand exactly what point it is he's trying to get across. And it comes to me now, what, what am I going to do with the information that I do understand? It's this gap that experts call the, the knowing doing gap. We know what to do, but do we do what we know to do? And I'll, I'll explain it a little bit this way and make, maybe make a comparison. Most of you, just about all of you, I guess, know my older brother Randy. My much, much older brother Randy. <laughs> Randy has worked at the same job with the same company for over 35 years but I have absolutely no idea what he does. And that's, that's the honest truth. I don't know. People ask me all the time, what's your brother Randy do? I don't know. I know he's a consultant, and I know he travels a lot, but I don't know what he does. In fact, to tell you the truth, I don't think his wife, Tease, knows what he does either. The best explanation I ever got, one day Randy told me, well, here's, here's one way to look at it. I tell people what they don't want to hear but already know. And I try to convince them to do what they don't want to do, but they know they need to. And I'm like, and you get paid for that? <laughs> I mean, to me that sounds horrible. You know, it sounds so frustrating to me. But we see it all the time, right? We understand the concept, and we understand the need. You know, you look at businesses, you got, you got businesses, and they know that they need to improve customer service. They know how important customer service is in business. So they talk about it. And they bring in people to give talks about customer service. And they have employee meetings about customer service. And they write customer service into their mission statement. But they never actually get around to doing anything about customer service. Or a company knows how important quality control is. And so they, they have seminars about quality control. And they have endless meetings about how to improve quality control. And they read books and they do research on machinery that might help improve quality control. But they never get around to ever doing anything about quality control. It's a problem, but it's not a problem of ignorance. It's not a problem of lack of information. It's a problem of not doing what we know we need to do. It's a problem of knowing too much and, and doing too little. No shortage of knowing, just a shortage of doing. Now, aren't you glad that that same kind of thing never happens in our lives? Aren't you thankful that if the right information gets poured into us, if we just get the right information, 
we will automatically and effortlessly do whatever we need to do. Aren't you glad it works that way? Wives, aren't you glad that all you have to do is tell your husband what you want him to do and immediately he goes out and does it? Aren't you glad it works that way? Parents, aren't you thankful that as long as you pour the right information into your children, as long as they hear the right things and read the right books and you know hear what you're saying, that they'll just automatically go out and do exactly what you want them to do. Aren't you thankful that works that way? Yeah. Right. See, Jesus understood this whole knowing-doing thing. In fact, Jesus takes the knowing-doing thing very, very seriously. And he's going to talk about it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now this morning, as we're kind of introducing the Sermon on the Mount, today is also the, the week, beginning of the week, where a lot of our small groups are going to also be following along in the same information. And to kind of keep up with our small group pattern and, and uh, curriculum, I am actually going to introduce the Sermon on the Mount by jumping to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to begin at the very end of Matthew chapter 7 as we introduce the Sermon on the Mount. And I guess it makes sense, right? Next week we'll back up to chapter 5 at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus is going to craft his final thoughts very, very carefully. Anybody that does very much public speaking knows that you need a really strong opening and you need a really strong closing to a talk. You need to begin with something that's going to get people's attention. Something that's going to give people a reason to listen to you. And then you need to close with something that's going to be able to be remembered. Something that's going to be able to be put into practice or applicable. You know the old preacher joke about the advice to preachers, have a good opening, a good closing, and make sure they're close together. You know, another preacher joke. I don't always do that. In fact, I very seldom do that. Again, it's the whole knowing-doing thing. I know that's what I should do, but I don't do it. But Jesus crafts his thoughts very carefully. He shares this fantastic message with these people on the side of a hill. He knows that the problem that they're going to have. And so he wraps his sermon up with a story. Now I want you to try to picture yourself there on the side of a hill listening to Jesus talk. He shared this incredible information. And he said some things that, that says brand new. And he's talked about some things that really piqued your interest. And then he brings it all to, to a close with a story. And here's how he wraps up his sermons. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, in other words, people who know what to do and do it, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Verse 26. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. In other words, those who hear but don't do. It's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. End of sermon. No invitation song. No closing prayer. No final announcements. It fell with a great crash. Go home. So, well, that's kind of a downer way to end the most famous sermon in the world, isn't it? You know, Jesus, couldn't you have been a little bit more encouraging at the end here? But Jesus knows the human heart. 
And he knows the struggles that we have. Knowing the right things, that's easy. You know, it's easy for us to know the right things. We're really good at knowing the right things. We're even better at telling other people the right things. It's the doing. That's where we seem to have problems. We're smart people. You're smart. You know, we know stuff. And we like to talk about stuff. And we like to study stuff. And we like to argue about stuff. And we like to debate stuff. And we like to learn more stuff. And as long as it just stays that, as long as it just stays kind of an intellectual exercise, we're okay because we're still in control. As long as we're learning more stuff, as long as we're getting smarter, we're still in control. But the doing part, oh boy, that's going to cost me something. Because the doing part means, you know, I'm going to have to spend some time. And I'm going to have to spend some effort. I'm probably going to have to spend some money. You know, the doing part means that regardless of how smart I am, regardless of how many arguments I can win, I'm not in control anymore. And for most people, that's a problem. And for most people, that's pretty scary. And Jesus knew it. So my prayer as we go through this sermon series isn't that we get smarter. Because that's a good thing. Getting smarter is a good thing. But my real prayer isn't that we just get smarter. I want us to get better. I don't want us just to know more. I want us to do more. I want us to, to be more as we go through these three powerful chapters that we call the Sermon on the Mount. You know, a lot of people think that this section of Scripture is nothing really but a list of rules and moral principles or ethical guidelines that can be pretty easily dismissed. But I think Jesus is doing a whole lot more than that. Yeah, there are some rules and there are some ethical guidelines and moral principles here, but Jesus is teaching on a much, much deeper level than this. The crowd that came to listen to Jesus that day, they'd heard talks on rules before. They'd heard rabbis talk about the Ten Commandments since the day they were born. But they'd never heard anybody say things like Jesus said. And never heard anybody make claims like Jesus is going to make. In fact, what Jesus says really makes them stop in their tracks. And we kind of pick up what's going on back in chapter 4 of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, Matthew kind of summarizes Jesus' whole message. And he says in verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then you skip down a couple verses. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. What was Jesus teaching? What was he preaching? What was his message? It was the kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is near. And then he begins the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, when Jesus said that, when people heard Jesus say, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, they came running. That got their attention. They wanted to hear more. Because the people that Jesus was speaking to, they were a very, very kingdom-focused group of people. They had waited for the kingdom. They would longed for the kingdom. Yeah, they had some misunderstandings about the whole, how the whole thing was going to play out, but this was a very kingdom-focused group of people. And they got excited when they heard that the kingdom was near. 
But here I think is a disconnect for too many of us. I think too many of us think of the kingdom as some geographical place far, far away. And one day when we die, hopefully we get to go there. But that's not what these people thought of when Jesus was talking about the kingdom. And I don't think that's what Jesus means either when he's talking about the kingdom. It goes back to the prophets, back to Isaiah. We talked about the good news being that God reigns and that there is a realm, that there is a reality where everything that God wants to happen, happens. The kingdom. John Ortborg describes the kingdom as the range of God's effective will. In his book, The Kingdom-Focused Church, Gene Mims refers to the kingdom as the reign of the Lord in the lives of his people. In other words, the kingdom of God is the reign of Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus made the kingdom the central focus of his message, the central focus of his teaching, really the central focus of his life. In the Gospels, Jesus refers to this community of believers as the church two times. But he'll talk about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God over 90 times in the Gospels. A realm where God reigns, where Christ is Lord, where we walk by faith, not by sight, where Jesus is magnified, worshipped, and glorified. Now, the question is, how does Jesus know this is about to happen? He makes a pretty staggering claim. How does he know this is about to happen? And we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. But as we're introducing the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is pretty quick to introduce, this is a kingdom thing. This is a God thing. This isn't something that man is coming up with. You know, when man would try to engineer it, it would get messed up. This is a God thing. The kingdom is near. And then he gives in the Sermon on the Mount a bunch of stories and examples and teachings about what this kingdom is going to look like. And what the people who are living in the kingdom what they're going to look like and what they're going to sound like and what they're going to act like. A kingdom kind of life. Jesus isn't laying down a new set of rules. Far from it. He's not putting down another layer of legalism. Not at all. He's saying something's coming. Something's about to happen. And when it happens, this is what it's going to look like. And this is how people are going to live their lives. People with a kingdom focus, this is how they're going to deal with their anger. And this is what their prayer life is going to look like. And this is what their relationships are going to look like. And this is what you know, their honesty and their integrity is going to be like. Let me whet your appetite just a little bit for what's to come by giving you one of my quizzes, because I know how much you love my quizzes. And I know how important it is for some of you to be able to raise your hand you know, in the middle of a sermon. You like doing that. Although I don't think any of you are going to be raising your hand in this quiz. Um, if you had to be honest with yourself, kind of an honest assessment, assessment of yourself or even us as a group for that matter, would you say we have more of a knowing problem or more of a doing problem? You individually, would you say, I have more of a knowing problem or I have more of a doing problem? Now, I can't answer that for you, but I can't answer it for me. I have much more of a doing problem than I have a knowing problem. So let me give you a little bit of a quiz here. Here's something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 5, 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's conventional wisdom. They'd heard that before. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus makes it pretty clear that this is what kingdom-focused people do. Kingdom-focused people don't just love their neighbors. They love their enemies. Who's your enemy? Somebody that's hard to love, right? Now, how many of you are just amazed that Jesus would say that? How many of you are surprised that Jesus would tell us to love? You know, here in the 21st century, knowing what we know, how many of you are going, I can't believe that Jesus is coming down on the side of love? I was just sure that Jesus was going to say, go ahead and hate your neighbor and your enemy and everybody else. No, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's, that's good. They do it to you, do it to them. Get them back, only worse. You know, hatred, mean-spiritedness. That's a good way to live your life. Are you really surprised that Jesus came down on the side of love? Does that surprise us? No. Of course Jesus is going to come down on the side of love. Well, how's that working for you? How are you doing at loving your enemy? The people that probably won't love you back. Oh, yeah, but you don't know what they did. No, I don't. You don't know what she said. No, I don't. You don't know how aggravating that person is and how miserable they're making my life. Well, that's why you probably consider them your enemy, right? And Jesus said, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to love people who are aggravating and are hard to love back. Let me tell you a, a personal story. I might have shared this with some of you before. It happened a while back. Martha and I went into a Wendy's. Actually, the Wendy's down on 60. They're uh, in Brandon. Martha went and sat down. I ordered our meal. The total came to $10.85. I wanted a $10 bill back, so I gave the little girl at the cash register $21. She punches it in the cash register, hands me back $9.15. She said, excuse me, but I gave you $21. She said, yeah, I know. And I said, the bill was $10.85. That's right. I said, well, my chain, you put something in wrong, my chain should be $10.15. She turns her sign and said, Charlie! Charlie! So some guy comes, who I'm assuming is the manager. What seems to be the problem? There's no problem. No problem. I, just, I think she entered something wrong in the cash register. The bill was $10.85, and I gave her $21, and you know, I should get $10.15 back. So Charlie looks at this little girl and says, what did the cash register say? The little girl said, cash register said $9.15 back. And Charlie looks at me like, well, there you go. What are you going to do? And I, I'm like, really? No, wait. No, we're in agreement that I gave her $21 for a $10.85 bill. My change is $10.15. And they just stared at me. And they were looking at me like I was some kind of a moron, probably because I was looking at them like they were some kind of morons. And I shouldn't have said it. I, I know, you know, I regret it, and I knew as the words were leaving my mouth, I, I should take those back, but I said it. I said, listen, if Johnny has 21 apples, and you take 10 apples away, 
How many apples does he have left? Come on, this is like second grade math. And the guy finally shakes his head. He goes, just give him the $10. No! You are not giving me anything. You owe me $10.15. That's the correct change. He goes, yes, sir. Have a nice day. And he walked away. So I take my tray. I walk back, sit back down where Martha is. She's been watching this whole thing, but she can't hear what's going on. And she's like, what was that all about? And I said, you know, there's just this inner jerk inside me that comes out sometimes. It's kind of scary. She smiled and leaned over and kissed me on the cheek and said, yeah, I know. <laughs> what Jesus is saying in the Sermon on the Mount is he is inviting us into a new kind of life. A lifestyle where we're going to be characterized by love and kindness and goodness. A lifestyle where people are going to know who we belong to by the way that we show love. Even when they don't love us back. And even when they're hard to love sometimes. So as we walk through this Sermon on the Mount, my prayer is, Jesus, would you make us doers? Would you not just make us smarter? Would you make us better? Would you make us more loving? Or how about this? Here's another teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. It's in chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. Again, anybody shocked that Jesus would say this? Is anybody shocked that Jesus would tell us, don't worry? Are you, are you thinking, surely Jesus was going to say, you know, stress, anxiety, that's a good life strategy. In fact, you need to figure everything out on your own. You need to get it all figured out. Do it, worry about it until you got it right. That's how you need to live your life. No, we're not surprised at all that Jesus would say, don't worry about your life. Don't be anxious. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of us are awake at 4 o'clock in the morning worrying about something? You know, we, we worry about our families and our marriages and our jobs and our finances. We worry about things that we might have said or should have said, we about, worry about things that we might have done or, or should have done, we worry. And we know that Jesus said, don't worry. We understand the teaching. And then we start to worry because we're not living up to the teaching. So we get kind of caught in this worry vortex. But Jesus doesn't say, don't worry by trying hard not to worry. Jesus says, have a kingdom focus. In fact, here's what he says. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink or wear or how you're going to live. Don't worry about your life, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now Jesus isn't saying that the storms aren't going to come. Storms came to both of the houses in his final story here in the Sermon on the Mount. What he is saying is when the storm hits, you know, when your marriage takes a turn, when your family's in peril, when when your finances start to run short, when your health starts to fade, your house can still stand. Your house will still stand if you have a kingdom focus, if you're seeking the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not about easier circumstances. And it's not about you know, avoiding peril 
or avoiding obstacles. It's about a kingdom focus. The kingdom is here for you. And again, as we go through this series, my prayer is, Jesus, would you make us doers? Would you make us better? And when those, when those storms come and we have this tremendous urge to worry and this tremendous urge and temptation and just an overwhelming sense that it's going to stress me out, would you allow us to step back and get a kingdom focus? Would you allow us to seek first the kingdom? Jesus sings, what's up there is coming down here. How does he know that? Look at the very end of chapter 7. We're jumping around a little bit this morning. Next week we'll kind of, I think, hit a rhythm and stay in order. But the very end of chapter 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now when Matthew says that the crowds were amazed because Jesus taught as one who had authority, Matthew had something very specific in mind. Matthew does not mean that the crowds were saying, wow, this guy's really good. This guy really knows the book. This guy really has a lot of scripture memorized. He has a nice speaking style. I like it. It's not what Matthew's talking about. What Matthew is saying is they were amazed because Jesus was saying things that nobody else was saying. And Jesus was teaching things that no other rabbi would dare teach. And he does it, among other places, in this little short parable, this short story at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. First century history tells us that there was a very popular rabbinical saying that rabbis would say in the first century. And here's the popular saying. Whoever studies Torah and does good works may be likened to one who lays a foundation of stone and brick that rising water cannot overturn. Sound familiar? That sounds a lot like Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? But it's not. There is a huge difference between what the rabbis were saying and what Jesus was saying. The rabbis were saying, whoever studies Torah is building their life on a solid foundation. That's what they're used to hearing them say. But that's not what Jesus says. Not in this story. Here's what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Jesus said, you used to have Torah. Now you have me. You used to have the Word. Now I'm the Word. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm here. My life. My teaching. My examples. My death. My resurrection. It's a kingdom focus. You know, crowds came to Jesus. Jesus drew huge crowds, especially at the beginning. And they, people flocked to Jesus because he was fascinating. He said fascinating things. And he did fascinating things. But for the most part, the crowds left uncommitted. Most people walked away. But every now and then, someone would have the courage and the faith to stand up, to walk away from the crowd, and say, I'm going to be a doer, and not just a hearer. 
I'm going to seek first the kingdom. And I'm going to do what Jesus is calling me to do. This morning, as we introduce the world's most famous sermon, do you have the courage and do you have the faith to stand up and say, you know what, I'm going to do what Jesus said to do. I don't want to just get smarter. I want to get better. I don't want to just know more stuff. I want to become the person I'm created to be. Maybe this morning you're at a place in your life where you just need some people to be praying for you, to be more of a doer and not just a hearer. Maybe you're at a place in your life where you never really thought about the kingdom in these kind of terms. Never really thought about Jesus as your Lord. Well, we'd love to talk to you about that. Nothing more important. There's nothing more important than seeking the kingdom and his righteousness. Putting Jesus on the throne where he is and where he belongs in your heart. We've got a song that we're going to sing as a song of encouragement. As a congregation, if we can minister to you in any way, come down here to the front and we'll do our very best. Let's stand and sing.